G'day everyone, welcome or welcome back to the Inner Voice podcast. I'm your host Travis McKenzie and I'm pleased to bring you the latest episode of the I'm Curious to Know project. Today's guest is Carl Thomas and as you'll hear in the conversation, I must thank Carl. You see, Carl played a massive part in carving the path for triathlon to become what it is today. He was responsible for creating USA Triathlon, growing the US Triathlon Series in the early 80s, and was a founding board member of the International Triathlon Union. Through his diligent lobbying and persistence, the ITU was recognized by the International Olympic Committee and thus set on a path to become an Olympic sport. Carl was uniquely positioned to bring this dream to life given his background as an athlete and his experience in marketing and governance in sports. This is a deep dive into the history of the sport and a conversation I was glad to be able to have. Thanks Carl for joining me and thank you all for being here. Enjoy the show. I want us to all wish a very happy birthday to Carl Thomas. Carl, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Travis, and thanks for the shout out. Um, we all have birthdays. Some, some we'd like to avoid going forward, but I have not figured that part out yet. How's uh, how's thirty five treating you now that you've just? Yeah, uh, it's turned really over. good to be thirty five again. <laughs> uh, no, it's awesome. I, I I feel great. You know, I'm in really good shape. We managed to to stay fit through this uh, absurdity we've all been dealing with at various levels and. As I shared with you a bit earlier, had a great walk on the beach this morning in Southern California, Del Mar, one of the great beaches in the world, not not just in Southern California. Now, we've got a lot to cover today. There is some history that I really, really want to talk about. And I, my claim to fame is that I did my first triathlon in Australia when I was eight years old. So that was 1990-ish. Uh, and at the time, triathlon was was in its early days. But you have a history that lends itself to being even before I was born, um, this triathlon thing became a thing. Before we get there, I want to talk about your athletic background because as w- was the case in the day, you either were a swimmer, you were either a runner or you were a cyclist. Uh, and then you potentially became a triathlete because of the crossover of, of sports as cross-training. Thanks for that, Travis. I started in aquatics as a competitive swimmer at six years old. Uh, grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and showed some promise early on, stayed with it. Even though I wanted to quit several times, my parents, you know, sort of said, no, you're, you got some talent here. You, you should stick it out, which I'm super thankful that I did. I was good enough uh, as I sort of began to, uh, high school, um, made the varsity all four years in high school. And then my senior year in high school began to get recruited by colleges senior year in high school, won two events, set league and statewide records in both those events, and entered uh, UCLA that fall at, on a scholarship for swimming. Yeah. Uh, when I, and when I got to UCLA, I, I had just gone through my first U.S. Olympic trials in swimming. Uh, I, I, came, I came 17th uh, out, of, out of maybe 40 guys that, that swam in that particular event. But you know, it was the real. It was really the big time, and and set I think the stage for me extremely well heading into what then was the Pac-8, uh, now the Pac-12. The interesting thing there is our swimming coach was a water polo coach first, and he got the swimming coach job because don't hire two coaches, right? Hire hire one coach. So as I entered UCLA that fall, having never played water polo. I was required to play water polo as an incoming freshman. Yeah. So as I entered UCLA uh, and got in the pool for the first practice for, for the water polo squad, 
there were no less than seven high school All-Americans in water polo that I now, <laughs> you know, was playing against. And, and literally, I didn't know up from down or, or sideways. But I learned very quickly because if you didn't, you, you didn't get out of the pools. Fast forward, you, you know, you, you do what you can in swimming and water polo. Uh, you're obviously fit. You're obviously healthy. And then you move on to a career at Speedo. Right. Well, I was as I as I left uh, UCLA, you know, hit the Olympic trials a second time, uh, came fifth that time, missed the Olympic team in swimming by about a yard, uh, then diverted all my attention to water polo, made the U.S. national water polo team. And as we were heading toward what would have been a follow up to the bronze medal winning team in Munich, come to find out that we don't we don't qualify to go to Montreal. The Canadians get a hall pass as the host country. And the, the prior year we had lost to Mexico in the Pan Am finals. So Mexico got the other bid. But but I looked really hard at that uh, as I was getting ready to sort of end my, if you will, competitive athletic career, join Speedo. But I but it always gnawed on me that that our water polo team, in my opinion, was mismanaged from the top. Right. So as an executive, I came in as a, you know, I, I, I managed the eastern half of the country for promotions and marketing for Speedo. I took it upon myself to get very active, if you will, politically in the sport of water polo. At the time, Speedo was the preeminent sponsor for all four, all four aquatic disciplines, swimming, water polo, diving, synchronized swimming. So there was a natural sort of segue for me into that role because it was part of my responsibility at Speedo anyway. And I did a pretty deep dive into the mechanics of how and why water polo as a sport was structured the way it was. And as I was doing that, um, I got a call from a really close friend of mine, also an athlete. She actually was a gold medalist in, in the 60s, Donna De Verona. And Donna said, listen, I, I want you to do me a favor. We, we, four athletes have been invited to go to Washington, D.C., uh, and testify before Senator Ted Stevens' committee on the Amateur Sports Act legislation that he has in development. Not just was what I was dealing with in water polo, quote unquote, mismanaged, but at the macro level, the, the U.S. Congress was actually taking a role in essentially, Travis, rewriting the way sport was managed in this country. But we're yep. sitting in front of Stevens' whole committee answering questions for two hours. It was yeah. unbelievable. So as I continued um, on in Speedo after that, listen, a couple of things happened. I became, you know, the marketing VP at, at Speedo and my job was to sell swimwear and position yeah. the brand, uh, which was already the global leader in aquatics, but position the brand as forward thinking, innovative, uh, not only in terms of product, product design, color, but also in terms of where and how Speedo chose to invest sponsorship dollars, because it's pretty easy to keep being the you know, national sponsor yeah. of swimming and diving and water polo. But, but what was next? So uh, lots of folks read this article, but in 1978 or nine, uh, Sports Illustrated uh, wrote an article, Barry McDermott authored it, and he wrote yeah. about the Ironman competition. All the way along, while not specifically aware of, of triathlon, I was a, a beach lifeguard in LA County because you yeah. know you sort of were able to do that as a swimmer and a water polo player and segue that between and among your training sessions. So it was a good way to earn money uh, and a lot of other things. 
But one of the one of the key parts uh, of that was lifeguard competition, and we did have a competition called the Ironman. It was swimming, running, and rowing a dory. So yeah. you had, and, and I think paddleboarding. But that's what I thought the article was going to be about when I when I opened SI. Wrong. It was about this gruelathon, which I came to call it, the Ironman competition in Hawaii, and that sort of got my wheels turning. I started yeah. to really think about how could begin to talk to broader segments of, of athletes and participants and, and what, how, that, how we could connect those dots. Yeah. The Iron Man was literally unreachable for mere mortals. I mean, you know, yeah. you had to be, back in those days, sort of nuts to do it. And there was really no sort of, if you will, every man weekend warrior triathlon format came up with the concept. Uh, we tweaked the format for a couple of years. And in 1984, really became the watershed year for the sport of triathlon. We settled on what called then the international standard distance, but then pivoted to the Olympic distance format of 1,500 meters swim, 40K by 10K run. And then we aggressively marketed not only our event, our series, but the format globally signed a licensing deal with the nascent Japan Triathlon Federation. They adopted the format. Uh, we provided them all of our production manuals on the how-to. As was very typical, the Japanese took what, what we had designed and what we had formatted for three consecutive years, and in their first year, did it better than we did. Do you think that you were uniquely positioned with your uh, background in uh, marketing with your background in the polit political side of the sport to be at the forefront of what was essentially the movement towards the Olympics and the beginning of USA Triathlon and the beginning of the International Triathlon Union. I've thought about it a lot. You know, it was sort of the the confluence of of a whole career, not only as an athlete, but yeah. but as a marketer, as as someone who understood at the very basic but more broadly and deeply levels what it took to organize sport not only at the event level but mm -hmm. at the state regional and national level so yeah. in 1982 as we were launching the series in five cities that year and then on to 12 cities in 1983 we, we launched what we called usta us united states triathlon association Although I probably knew it, I didn't really take into account the fact that tennis already had a USTA. Um, so when we first launched that, we sort of struggled with what, you know, really call it, it became TriFed USA, and then it is what it is today, USA Triathlon. Yeah. At the same time, uh, I recognized also the possibility at that point of, of the Olympic format and the Olympic Games and so the organizational infrastructure required to do that, what was, you know, sort of two-tiered. One, there needed to be national governing body organizations. They call it National Federation in Canada. You know, it's called a variety of things. But that needed to happen at the country level, but then it needed to roll up into, into an international federation. I was super familiar with the international federation structure. Nearly simultaneously began to to envision and then start the practical work of forming an organization, uh, creating a constitution, doing all that sort of stuff. And that early organization was called FIT, Federation yep. International Triathlon. Again, 
uh, you know, I stepped on somebody's toes because trampoline <laughs> is called FIT. So ultimately that morphed into ITU. Uh, so I co-founded that. And when ITU sort of became official at the first Congress in 1989, I was elected the first treasurer. What a brilliant backstory. It's, it's, I've read through the articles. I'm a tri historian and fan from the moment that I remember. I'm sure there was hard times. I'm sure it was really difficult to get this brand new sport, these brand new distances, these brand new federations. There's got to be pushback from multi levels. I mean, the it, it was there, there was a, a five year period there where the the sport literally hung in the political balance of a few folks. And there was a lot of cajoling, a lot of presenting, a lot of arguing, a lot of persuading, a lot of getting up and stomping out of meetings. I mean, sport is a few things. Athletes, and in the case of USTS in the international format, now the Olympic format, it was widely embraced by the athletic community, not just the elite, but way widely adopted by those who aspired to be triathletes. Without that massive participation-based, what I'll call amateur component, not sure it would have ever gotten to where it did get. There were a couple of real, you know, what I'll call inflection points. One was North America versus the rest of the world. There, especially on the European continent, there was this sort of fundamental skepticism in some quarters distrust of what was happening in North America. And then, and then secondly, there was this argument about format. There was a huge contingent, mostly in Europe, some in North America, that believed the Ironman format was the Holy Grail, was where this sport needed to end up. I led the charge that from a practical perspective, if any of you in this room or any of your constituents not in this room, but who you work with and for and report to, um, have any clear notion or understanding of the Olympic movement and the Olympic Games, you will know right now that the Ironman triathlon has zero, zero chance of making it onto the Olympic program. Yeah. Just because of its pure length and requirement from an athletic perspective, not not only the logistical nightmare of putting an Ironman on in an Olympic city. city. Yeah. And that was a drumbeat that I relentlessly pounded for all those years. And and you know, every time I got the microphone, people were like, roll their eyes because here it comes again. But in the end, that consistency, that persistence, that belief and the vision and the format held us all in good stead at the end of the day. Yeah, and the rest is history. Why do you think there was such an uptake of the sport from the amateur side? It, you know, it was still quite a, a uh, quite an effort for people. The Olympic distance was still two and a half hours to three hours, if not longer for most people, the equivalent of almost, uh, you know, a half marathon to a marathon type distance. So it's not easy for someone to take on. But you mentioned that it was this uptake immediately from the amateur side. What do you think that was? Uh, fundamentally, two things. One, uh, the awareness of fitness. Frank Shorter's marathon in the 72 Munich Olympic Games uh, put, you know, American marathoners on the map in a, in a really sort of interesting way. And then over that 
call it that next eight to 10 years, whether it was Bill Rogers, Frank Shorter, or Jim Fix, uh, or the you know, explosion of Runner's World as a, as a magazine and the proliferation then of, of unique magazine titles and content uh, pillars around sport and fitness and endurance and how all of those things work together to ultimately make somebody or someone a lot more fit. But I think that dovetailed almost perfectly, Travis, with the demographic shifts that were going on. If you want to call it the baby boomer generation, go ahead, because there were more of them at that moment in time than any other single demographic. And they were very dialed in and tuned in not only the physical fitness, but nutritional fitness and the sort of mind, body, spirit aspect to it. And I think triathlon came along at the perfect time, struck the perfect chord. People literally looked at that distance, said, well, you know, I've run the 10K. I've, I've ridden my bike for 50 miles on a weekend ride. I can do this. And it was really a struggle for the cyclists and runners who didn't have any background in swimming to yeah. become proficient enough in swimming to not drown. Yeah. Essentially, let's call a spade a spade because it's, yeah. it, it's especially when you go into open water, you know, swimming in a nice pool, nice bright blue water, black line on the bottom, see it, no problem, can get to the side. You get into an ocean or you get yeah. into a lake where you've got thrashing bodies all around you and you can't see forward, back, up, down, or whatever, and you basically you're in the black water, um, that's, that can be a really scary thing. And, and in those days, it was a lot, there was a lot of ocean swims and there was a lot of, you know, tough, tough swimming, you know, as a part of the event. It's not like today where there's a ripple and they'll cancel the swim. It was, you got to go out past the breakers and you're out oh, in dude. the open ocean. There were a lot of times where that starting gun sounded and I just said a prayer, man. I said, yeah. geez, I hope we don't have any bikes left in the transition area after this swim. Yeah. yeah. But you know, the, the, the amazing part of it is in much like we're sort of facing today with quite a different challenge. The that's human spirit that I can do this, that relentless pursuit and not giving up and sort of facing the fear and, and hurtling the fear was awesome to watch in those days because you just wouldn't have expected some of those folks to ever get out of the water. Well, it's true to, the, to, to this day though, as well. I think that, you know, there's, there's a lot more people who are more proficient, but there's still instances. You go to any race around the country, around the world, where you look at the start line, you're like, or you look at the fin, you get to the finish line, and you're like, "How did that person do it?" And it right. makes you, you it makes your heart beat a little faster, and you get goosebumps, and you're like, "This is so inspirational that people are going above and beyond." I want to skip forward a few years. Uh, you know, the U USTS uh, is is growing and building, and then we hit the '90s and the the movement towards the Olympics starts to happen the get the call comes in to les mcdonald and it's you know we were considering you for the olympics tell me about that next phase of, of from that moment to you know standing by the harbor uh, harbor bridge in the opera house in sydney in 2000 to your earlier point a lot of things had to go right so i'll start in with the inaugural congress in 1989 we've gone through very five tough years of debate of argument of of if you will politic in general and, and we were finally coming together. And, and actually, it took a very formidable adversary to bring the triathlon community in lockstep with each other. And this moment in time was really a galvanizing moment where 
everybody who labored in, in the triathlon space looked at, around each other and put political differences, cultural differences, socioeconomic difference, all those differences went aside and we actually galvanized together and faced the enemy. And the enemy, in this case, the adversary, was an existing Olympic sport called uh, pentathlon, modern pentathlon. And their organizing body, UIPMB, they actually managed a multi-sport, multi-discipline event called modern pentathlon. And they sort of felt like this multi-sport arena was theirs to control. So at that first 89 Congress, they were there in force, their entire executive board. We did the right thing by giving them sort of their own dais over to the side. So in, in retrospect, it was kind of a brilliant move executionally because what we did is we set them up as murderers row, right? They, as the first day of the Congress went on, it became very clear to everyone in that room who the adversary was. We had our rules set up, Travis, and pretty much the whole world of triathlon was following those rules, which was awesome. But modern pentathlon wanted, would, would not agree to use our system. They wanted to rewrite the whole thing. So, so I actually called for a vote from the floor, and, and I said, listen, can we agree to sort of acquiesce and join the UIPMB with the proviso that our competition rules, our way of doing things um, goes along with it. And before we could even call for the vote, the president of the UIPMB, who, who was a Russian, uttered one word, "Net." that's all he said. And our executive board turned and looked at that group and I said, I withdraw the motion. And within two hours, the whole group unanimously voted to institutionalize, organize ITU as a standalone international federation. And it was over. Yep. But that was in 1989. Les and I then went on the road for three years. Literally, it felt like three years. We were chasing the IOC all over the world. Every time there was an executive board meeting, we were there. We were looking around in lobbies. We were interacting with the board members, telling the story of what triathlon was. Yeah. And it was in the spring of uh, 92, 1992, later that summer, the Olympic Games would be in Barcelona. That was uh, yeah. Juan Antonio Samparanch's hometown. It was his dream from the moment he became the IOC president. Uh, and the executive board that spring, I want to say it was in April, uh, met. And uh, we learned as the meeting was convening that the ITU was on the agenda. They you know, didn't necessarily yeah. understand the competition format itself, but they knew who the ITU was and they knew who we were because they saw us every time they convened. And when that meeting broke up, uh, Sam Ranch led the group out of the meeting room, made a beeline, literally came straight to Les and myself standing there. And, we, and uh, there were a couple of other of our folks there. Marisol Casado was there. She was a, and now the ITU president, as you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he walked straight to Les, shakes his hand. He says, congratulations, you have recognition. Once we were recognized by the uh, IOC as a, 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 a legitimate standalone international federation governing our sport meant that we, we were now surrounded by an impenetrable fence as the one, the only, and forever 
exclusive international federation for triathlon. And 12 months later, our format was accepted onto the program for Sydney 2000. What an amazing experience, obviously. That that must have been something that you obviously look back clearly with joy and as a highlight of your life, being able to see that through. Now, tell me about the next you know, seven years, getting ready for that first appearance in Sydney. There must be a heavy lift to get um, that off the ground and, and start to form around a uh, international series and, and all of those things. Right. Well, that, that really sort of became the mechanics. We had a couple of things really going in our favor. One was Australia, mm-hmm. which fully embraced these multi-sport events. The Australian spirit is indefatigable, as you know, and it was awesome that the debut of triathlon as Olympic sport took place in Sydney. Yeah. The mechanics between 1993 and actually at the start line in 2000 were interesting and, yes, at some level challenging, but far less arduous than the prior 10 years because we knew what we knew and we knew that it could not be taken away from us. Honing the format, rolling out an ITU World Cup, staging a world championships every year, doing all those things that an international federation has to do, as well as encourage national governing bodies at the country level to penetrate it on down to lakes and rivers and 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 pools and oceans and all of that that was really where the spade work was for the most part the funding for these national governing bodies literally everywhere in the world except for the u.s comes out of government so once the olympic recognition was achieved once the sport was on the program officially as a metal sport not a demonstration sport that paved the way and unleashed uh, government funding across the world for national governing bodies. And and then, you know, now you were really starting to see this this canvas, this mural, uh, uh, the mosaic of the global sport of triathlon get filled in in a super interesting, very colorful way, as you know. And then I don't think the Aussies could have done it any better. The Aussies might have uh, other thoughts because the real hope was two gold medals. Uh, of course it was. <laughs> we only managed to get a silver. So yeah. there, there might be something left on the table as far as the Aussies are concerned in those games. Tell me about what it was like standing back, watching this all un- you know, unfurl, this first medal opportunity at the Olympic Games. Sadly for me, I was not personally there. I took it all in from from Southern California. It's almost indescribable to sort of watch it actually happen. Um, and I, but I literally had the same feeling four years ago, watching Gwen Jorgensen in Rio, yeah, uh, go hammer and tong with the Swiss girl, right up until the last three k of the run, and then and then Gwen, the amazing athlete that she is, literally separates in a hundred meters and you knew right then that that it was over so that feeling of of watching it unfold 20 years on 16 years on in that in that sort of magical way brought all those memories back from from sydney and i remember like it was yesterday um the start line of the swim everyone lined up on that blue carpeted dock in the in the harbor and with the backdrop of the brilliance of the Sydney Harbor, it's just spectacular. 
Yeah. Well, well, so I, I want to personally thank you because um, if not for the work that you did, you know, many people watching this show may not have ever done a triathlon. I, my life would be very different if it wasn't for triathlon and my participation. So I think we all have a, a debt of gratitude to owe you for the, for the work that you were able to do and the, the heavy lift to, to get it all going. So thank you for well, that. You're more than welcome. It was a, it was a, a labor of love, but, I'll, but also listen, there are, there are many points to the motivational star, right? It came out of business acumen married to my athletic career and my strong Olympic desire at whatever level. The recipe is is always interesting. When you, you taste it and it's like, wow, this is awesome. What's in this? And then you get 20 ingredients, right? But that's the mastery of being the chef. I feel so fortunate, Travis, to have been there at that time and played and played my part in what I think is, is one of the great, great stories of the birthing of a sport yeah. from, from inception to Olympic gold medals. In reality, it happened very quickly. You know, if, if you think about other sports that are centuries old, um, you know, and they start in the Olympics, but to watch a sport, you know, in your lifetime and almost in my lifetime come to life and then get to the Olympics and now be thriving around the world, it's happened really quickly. There's all this talk about how triathlon is suffering and the numbers are down and there's decline. And my point to that is, or my retort to that is, it's still a young sport. We're still finding our feet. We're still finding the best format. The world's changing, as you know. And it's, it's going to have to adapt and change as everything else is as well. No, I think that's well said. Fundamentally, every sport goes through its sort of cycles, right? There's a reason that we here fortunate enough to be living you know within a stone's throw of the pacific ocean go to the beach and watch the tide come in and go out it 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 ebbs it flows there's this rhythm oftentimes the focus the desire to take a snapshot in time and then call that a trend yeah. is about the worst thing you can possibly do so the breathe in, breathe out, the rhythm, um, all of those things are very natural. If there's a little bit of a, a deflate in, in the sport in terms of participation or, or whatever, that to me is an obvious duh. It's mm-hmm. going to happen. Don't yeah. you know, lose the forest for the trees. Yeah, and I think even at the top level, the adaptation now with the introduction of mixed team relay, you know, becomes even, you know, there's the team aspect to the sport now it's even shorter than a two hour race or a one hour 45 race. You know, it's an hour long. It's the sprint distance. The distances those athletes are participating in are so um, approachable for people who are watching on TV. You know, a, two, a 300 meter swim, 10K bike and 2K run or what have you is, is anyone can do that. So I think that that is a really wise move that has, you know, added another medal opportunity for countries. It's, I think it's great. I agree with you, and it's not only added another medal opportunity, but it's taken what has sort of quintessentially been a a uniquely individual sport and added a team aspect to it. One of the best things that ever happened to me athletically is is I spent, you know, all my formative years as an individual athlete, save for the relay in swimming. When I got a chance to be part of a seven-man team in water polo, and you, you slice and dice your roles. Somebody's the quarterback, somebody's the wideout, somebody's the fullback, somebody's the, the cornerback. That, to me, was so fun 
and it, it, it allowed me to leverage my, obviously at that point, significant swimming capability into the, the strategy of being part of a team and sort of learning each other's ins and outs to a point where no look passes, you knew you could do it because you knew your team weight was where he was supposed to be. Yeah. And that's why at UCLA, we won, you know, three out of four national championships in, in a row. And, and the only one we didn't win, we lost in double overtime, double sudden death. Right. I mean, so we were formidable then, but it was so cool to be a part of a team. And I applaud yeah. Maricol and the entire ITU board all the way down to the NGBs to adopt this, like what I think is a super cool uh, yeah. relay concept. And I think, I think you'll see more innovation and adaptation. And I think over time, more medal opportunities will come forth within the sport triathlon. This has been a, an, an amazing conversation, a deep dive into the history of the sport. We've left out probably seven or eight things that we need to talk about, which I think will be a second show for us because there's so much else of your life, other parts of your life that I'm really curious to know, but we're, but we're out of time. But I want to I finish up with three questions that I throw uh, the way of each of my guests, and I'm going to throw them your way. Uh, the first question, what's one thing that's changed for you during this isolation, lockdown, stay-at-home period that you want to keep once we go into whatever the next phase of normal is for us all? Right. I think it's it's paying attention to how one spends one's time. For me, time management and being very cognizant of the time that has been taken away from me to do things that I normally would have done has allowed me to refocus on where and how best to spend my time, whether it's work, whether it's uh, working out, training. And, you know, I, I in, in a normal course, Travis, I'm a swimmer. I swim five to six days a week and I, I've got a very odd workout. I, I jump in the pool and I do 40 laps, period, end of story. That has been taken away from me. I can't wait for the pools to come back. Yeah. Uh, I also ride stationary bikes, so I'm, I, you know, I don't have a Peloton in my garage. So I'm keen to have the fitness center reopen uh, in a way where I can, you know, sort of turn that workout or training or keeping in shape activity uh, back into those two things that I know I love because I've missed them. Second question, Carl. What is one thing that you thought was important before this period that you're happy to leave in the past? my wife and I together, we sort of call this the garbage heap, right? So when, when, when you, when you throw something in the garbage, that's step one. What you don't want to do is leave the garbage bag in the house. Right. It's got to go out to the curb and it's got to go on the truck and it's got to be gone. And only then can you, you know, sort of make room for the next wave of what's going to be thrown away. So I think in combination, it's, it's not, only what I am choosing to do with my time, but the flip side of that coin is, where was I spending time with people, with places, with things that really don't matter, that aren't really that important? So what makes the cut list is a, is a sort of a, you know, really important exercise we all need to go through as individuals. Very good. The garbage heap. You've been in our house. My wife taps you on the shoulder all the time. When are you going to take that out there, guy? <laughs> Third and final question. What's been your most memorable moment of joy during this period? That's easy. 
Our second grandchild was born in February, right before all of this hit. Here's another story, Travis, that you and I should come back on. My, my wife and I took a bucket list trip to Austria and Switzerland to ski, departed LAX on the 4th of March, returned to LAX on the 19th of March. That's yeah. a whole other story. But the joy of the birth of our grandson, second grandchild, he has an older sister who just turned three last weekend, and we got a chance to go hang with them. Being able to be with and watch those those grandkids, that that's that's the easiest answer of the three questions. Carl, this has been amazing. I, I honestly want to have you back on the show at some point because there's so much more we need to talk about, but I appreciate your uh, articulation of what is a rich history in the sport. Uh, it's given me the opportunity to, to talk to one of the godfathers, which I'm very grateful for. Uh, and I look forward to staying in touch and, and hearing more from you in the future. No, I hope we can do, Travis. This was awesome. Uh, I loved telling the stories. And as, as, you, as you know, there's a whole lot more to this than, than we've been able to touch on. And I hope you will have me back. I'd love to do it. Thanks again, Carl. It was such a pleasure to have you on the show. We missed a large chunk of your journey that we need to cover next time. Also, a huge shout out to you for being here. It means a lot and I hope you enjoyed the 30 days of the I'm Curious to Know project. One more day to go. I'm Travis McKenzie and this is the Inner Voice Podcast.